Baie welkom uh, bij die, die bespreking vandaag. Bij dat so baie van julle is, ons bespreek, ons bespreek twee belangrijke boeken. Maar ongelukkig gaan ons vandag bykie op sy Engels praat, want mijn gast is niet allemaal uh, Afrikaans eeuwig vader. <laughs> so, yeah, good morning. Um, let me start here. Jeremy Thompson, um, book is an autobiography called Breaking News, and uh, go and get it, it's fascinating. Jeremy is as famous in South Africa as he is in Britain. He is a legendary television personality and a much revered journalist all over the world. And uh, I'm happy to have known him for some years. Um, Ray Hartley, um, book is Ramaphosa, The Man Who Would Be King, probably the most well-timed book of the last five years. <laughs> uh, former editor of the Times, former editor of the Sunday Times, now as I figure it out in charge of Grand Daily Mail Online, Business Live, uh, and that's Ray Hartley. And Koketsu Sachane, communi communication and media strategist. If you ask me, the uh, prime media resident uh, intellectual, with a bit of a common <laughs> touch. A <bit> much. <laughs> <laughs> with a common touch, uh, one of the people I love most uh, on radio. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, Ray, we're going to start with you, your book. Um, so, Cyril did become king. How strongly did you believe that that would be the case when you started writing the book? When I started writing the book, I was very confident that he would win because, uh, you know, he spent 22 years out in the wilderness and then he came back into politics. And I think he would have only done that if he was certain that he was going to achieve his goal. But as the, the months went on and this uh, <laughs> conference drew closer and closer, you know, the gap was narrowing quite substantially. And in the end, it was quite a narrow victory. 178 votes. So yeah. 90 people vote the other way. We would have sat here with long faces because Jacob Zuma would still have been our president. Absolutely. It was, it was very close. It was a close yeah. call. Um, when I met uh, President Ramaphosa the first time in 1984, when he was with National Union of Mine Workers and he tried to put Kusatu together, I looked at this guy, young, firebrand, big beard, and I remember every time I saw him up close and even spoke to him, I had the impression that he believed that it was his destiny to be the president of a democratic South Africa. Do you think there's something like that about Cyril? I th absolutely. I mean, you know, the anecdotes about him as a youngster in Soweto telling his friends, school friends, I'm going to be president one day. You know, and uh, his, his very carefully calculated moves that he's made through the years have all been aimed at raising his political profile, getting into the center stage, and then staying there. You know, he, you know, he, the NUM actually was uh, originally started by the Black Consciousness Movement, and, uh, and when I think he realized that uh, it was the ANC and not the Black Consciousness Movement that was making all the running in South African politics, he literally took that union out of the black consciousness movement and into the ANC fold. And, 
And not only that, he then, you know, the NUM became one of the trade unions in in Kasatu that was more pro, you know, political involvement and support for the ANC than the others. And it became the sort of staunchest union supporter of, of the ANC. And I think that was, you know, that just shows you how he makes a calculation and then executes it and, and then just takes a leap forward onto a new podium that's closer to, closer to power. One of the untold stories is how it was David Mabuza who delivered uh, the crown to Cyril Ramaphosa. Could you give the audience a little bit of a background of how that kind of horse trading worked? Because we're paying the price for it now. He's yeah. our deputy president, for Pete's sake. Yes, I think David Mabuza played a brilliant political game because, firstly, in Pomalanga, although not by any means the, you know, the country's most populous province, happens to have the second highest number of voting delegates at the ANC conference because of branches that have been established, work that's been done for years and years and years to actually build the province into a powerhouse within the ANC. So it's second only to KwaZulu-Natal. And, uh, and then what he did really was sort of declare neutrality for, for Mpumalanga. So those 800 votes were out of the pot, you know, when the calculation was being made, uh, you know, about who had got which votes. Mpumalanga was out there and some of the Mpumalanga voting delegates did declare their allegiance. So there were about 400 eventually that were in this neutral position. And that made him the power broker. You know, he could then go to both parties and say, what are you going to give me? And obviously Ramaphosa at that point, I believe, said, you will be deputy president. And won a heartbeat away from the presidency. And I think that, that sealed the deal. Do you, do you think when we saw... President Ramaphosa at his press conference uh, um, announcing the cabinet, postponed twice, unlikely for him, and we all looked at the guy, he wasn't himself, he, his eyes were tired, he, he was sort of grey in the face. Do you think, and, and the talk was, it was about negotiations, last minute negotiations, do you think those negotiations were about Mabuza or some of the other cabinet ministers? I think they may have been about Mabuza because I don't think that all of his allies um, were on board with that decision that Mabuza be the deputy president. And I think there was a lot of last minute wrangling over that. I think also that he, he took quite a momentous decision, which, which hasn't paid off politically, incidentally, <laughs> to, to basically get rid of 10 of Zuma's ministers in one fell swoop. Um, and he kept the weakest ministers and gave them very limited portfolios. But in exchange for that, the public has said that he's compromised and kept the super ministers in his cabinet. So I think it was quite an exhausting process, and there must have been a lot of pushback from Zuma and his allies um, over that. Because, to, you know, I mean, what he did there, I think, was clear out the, uh, the public finance administration uh, positions out of the Zuma camp completely and then you know all the way from mining through to finance mm. um, and I think that was probably a pretty grim bit of backroom politics that had to be done inside the ANC. But the sweet vengeance of bringing Tlantanene and Praveen Gordon back who had been humiliated by his predecessor. Absolutely yeah I think that was uh, you know that was a very strong statement. 
I, and with that reshuffle, I think what Ramaphosa was doing was looking at the economic ministries. And then with the rest, he was prepared to compromise. Okay, well, you know, we'll keep Batsubilet Lamini, we'll make a minister of something in the mm. presidency. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, but his focus was very much trained on the first... There's, a, there's an interesting thing, that uh, term that, that Ramaphosa always uses repeatedly and has for many decades, beachhead. He talks about establishing a beachhead. Yeah. Um, and if I look at this cabinet, I see him establishing a beachhead in the finance and economic ministries. That then closes the tap to anybody else in any other ministry who wants to get access to patronage and perpetuate that system of um, state, state capture. Because a beachhead is almost a military term. It's yeah. like a launch pad. This is prepare this and then the struggle Absolutely. goes from there. I think that he's a, he plays the long game. You know, he actually has a long-term objective. And you very often read what he's doing now, and it only unfolds later what was really going on. You know, when he was at Zuma's side, being nice to him, patting him on the back, smiling, all the time he was just waiting for the moment where the balance tilted in the party against Zuma. And then he came out and said, mm. jail them, take the money back, you know and do all of those things. I think that quite startled Zuma at that point. Um, so you've got to sort of understand how things are going to unfold more than your, your opponents do. Did you read the Brian de Villiers piece published yesterday, I think, by Business Insider? Brian no. de Villiers, former journalist. Did you read it? Yeah. He comes up with, he says, first-hand knowledge that Zuma was about to uh, call the troops, seal off parliament, and call out a state of emergency on the day of the m supposed motion of no confidence. What did you make of that? I mean, that it's a bit, it would have been so scary. I, I think it, it's, it's probable. Um, Rian asks a very important question that there's a, there's a need for some explanation. There's a need for us to know what happened during that week. Um, and he points out the fact that Cyril Ramaphosa went and thanked uh, General, uh, head of, uh, General Shoke, um, and he made the point of thanking the army for adhering to the constitution and respecting the constitution. Now, that's, that's something very strange to do soon after yeah. you become president. Yeah. What are you thanking them for? Yeah. So, essentially, what, uh, for those who haven't read it, um, what, what Rian says is that there were some people within the army that were prepared to go with the idea uh, by President Jacob Zuma to, as Mike said, seal off the, uh, the parliament um, on the day that the motion was supposed to be uh, debated and passed. But there are other members of the SANDF who said, no, there's nothing constitutionally that gives us the right to do so, so that's not going to happen. Um, and Sir Ramaphosa felt the need to go and thank them. And I think that's, that's a major, major question there. Yeah. Um, as to why did he have to go and thank the army, what was happening. And I think we continuously in South Africa um, operate within a certain sense of vacuum from our political leaders who don't explain certain things that, that might have happened. And if it is the case that this is what happened, surely it needs to be investigated. Surely there is, there is a need for not only an, invest, um, uh, an explanation, but those who have done wrong, those who could possibly have brought our country to uh, some sort of coup or whatever it was that was the plan, they need to be held to account. Yeah. 
I think we, we often don't, we, we're often not grateful enough for the culture of non-intervention by the military in our society, unlike Turkey, Poland, Zimbabwe, uh, Russia, other places, that we didn't have it before 94 and we certainly didn't have it after 1994. It's almost the old British tradition uh, that the military serves the government of the day. And here for the first time, we, we almost got there. Yeah. So, Kukitsa, I want to ask you, looking back uh, over the last few weeks, do you think Cyril, I think as the people of South Africa call it, we, talked, we didn't talk about Jacob, we talked about Zuma, but now the common thing is we talk about our president as Cyril. Do you think Cyril has put a foot wrong since he became president? I think I, I personally have lowered my expectation with all of them across the board. Um, I'm quite cautious and cynical at the same time. And I take issue with the manner in which Cyril has quickly attained the hero status. Um, he comes from a very low base as a start. Um, and I think also we tend to forget that he was there all along during that period. And he started being vocal about certain things as he was putting his hat um, forward for, for the ANC presidency and also uh, possibly the presidency of the country. Um, so he has made certain decisions that speak to Cyril being the strategist, or you could even argue the opportunist, depending on how you look at it. So foot wrong, yeah, look at the cabinet, the makeup of the cabinet, people quite critical of him and keeping certain individuals, but this is in his nature to be the strategist, to not rock the boat. We've needed Cyril to rock the boat at a certain time when it really mattered, and he didn't. And I, I believe that what he did wrong was keep quiet all along and speak only when it was going to be to his benefit. Yeah, I, I wrote in a column about a week after he was elected that my <clears throat> analysis was that his main challenge would not be Ace Shule or the, the ethnic uh, mobilizers in KwaZulu-Natal, but the new spirit of populism, uh, cheap populism that had taken yeah. hold uh, in, in the ANC with the help of Julius and, and the Zuma faction and Bill Pottinger and, and the Guptas and ANN7. And I think, do you think that uh, I had a point in the sense that that's what we're doing now? Suddenly, on the 28th of February last year, we had a debate in the National Assembly uh, on, um, on land, yeah. when the EFF said, take it away without uh, compensation. And the ANC stood up and they said it was populist. And they said it was a cheap political trick. Yeah. And they explained, uh, I think it was, it was Jeremy Cronin who did the main speech, said, there's nothing wrong with this constitution. You can do all that with the present constitution. And a year later, they echo the EFF and call those who said what they did a year ago racists and uh, people against uh, land reform. The, this populist thing, as we again saw yesterday with uh, Julius Malema, is it going to be a bit of a problem for us? But is it not the culture of South African politics in general? I think, I think it is. Um, what we have seen, and we, we, we also should not forget that a lot of the 
the rhetoric or even the decisions that are taken are also strategic. So the ANC, like you're saying, last year, Feb, they took the decision that they did when it came to land. But also EFF has set the agenda politically on certain issues. The ANC had to respond to what EFF was saying, and they took the decision that they did um, in NASREC. And so in a way, it is them neutralizing um, the, the EFF, you could, you could argue. But for me, what I see as the use of populism and amazing strategy on the part of Cyril Ramaphosa in particular is to is to use the, the Mandela factor. So you come from a low base, like I said, and then suddenly you have got an opportunity to present yourself differently. You're going to draw from the Mandela spirit. You're going to draw from, I am the negotiator. This is, I'm going to take certain decisions based on consultation, and it's going to be for the people. He used the right kind of words. The speech, the state of the nation address, was populist in a lot of ways, um, because he was drawing from, you know, we can all work together, black and white together, let's build together as South Africans, draw in Tumamena by Hugh Masekela. It all sounds amazing. It all sounds good. And therefore it equals, I am the hero of the moment right now, and let's all rally together. And, and it's populist. I was shocked when, so on Cape Talk, primarily you have a certain view um, expressed of the ANC or, or the president of the country. Soon after Tumamina and the State of the Nation address, suddenly people who a week before were critical of the ANC, they're saying, I can vote for Sol Ramaphosa now. Why? Mm. Because of that populism. Because of the amazing strategy that is working. And, and, and because he's not Zuma. I mean, yeah. I mean, hey. The difference between him and Zuma is like the difference between Barack Obama and Obama. I mean, exactly. It, it couldn't be. Let's turn to... Jeremy, Jeremy, we'll talk about your book a little bit later, but let's stay on this topic. You came back here. Jeremy worked here quite a bit. He has a strong affinity for this land, mm. and he has many, many loyal friends here. But you came back at this critical period. It must have been absolutely fascinating because you experienced 94, and now you're back here for episode two of, <laughs> of, of the grand drama that is South Africa. I came partly on holiday and partly promote a book, which by pure chance happens to be called Breaking News, which is what I became famous for for the last 20 or 25 years. And uh, I turned on the television set when I arrived, and every screen's got breaking news across. And I thought, what a fantastic <laughs> South African welcome. How kind of you to recognize my book, because every time I turn on another channel, breaking news, I thought, this is fantastic. What a way to sell a book. I'm so lucky. And then somebody said, well, they've actually got a small leadership crisis at the moment. It might be about that. So it turned out it was. But yet again, I'm arrive at the right time and to be a journalist to be a lucky journalist is to be very fortunate and i've been quite lucky and you need it from time to time as all journalists recognize so to turn up at this time has been fabulous for me i tend to come back every year on holiday to see friends but to come in the middle of this um <clears throat> another great south african drama and 
being an Englishman who is used to an age-old democracy that trundles along rather stoically and dully and unremarkably day in, day out, to come back to South Africa and realise that you are such drama queens, you don't do anything by heart, nothing is understated, it's a roller coaster ride, it has been as long as I can remember, and you go from the heights of euphoria to the slough of despond in a matter of seconds. Yeah. And this time you have gone from the slough of despond to a sort of small peak of euphoria. Um, beware, be cautious, I would say. Um, I think it's promising. I think it's hopeful. I'm pleased for you. I love South Africa. I think South African people are wonderfully resolute and resilient and long-suffering and patient, so they deserve a bit of good news. Um, but Cyril's not perfect, and as I've discovered over 50 years of journalism, no democracy is perfect. You've just got to hope you find the right sort of people to send it in the roughly the right sort of direction. Um, my last big story was really the Trump election, and I said to my boss, well, I'd rather like to go out with a bang rather than a whimper, so... I contrived to go out with the Trump election, which was a bang, sort of, of sorts. Depends what sort of bang you think it was. But I described that election as being one of those elections of lesser evilism. People didn't want either Hillary Clinton or Trump. In the end, they decided that the lesser of two evils was Donald Trump. A lot of people told me they held their nose and went to vote for him regardless, even though they couldn't stand him. So you've got a bit of less of evilism here. Cyril is undoubtedly a lot better than Zuma, and therefore the overwhelming feeling is relief, I think, from most of you. And then you've sort of turned that into whew, holding thumbs, uh, optimism, and this is all going to be all right. Um, I think Cyril, I've watched him over almost as long as Max, and I think he's an impressive guy. I think he's a great negotiator can be quite pragmatic, can be tough, was one of the you know, overriding reasons, along with Rolf Mayer, that they got the job done after Codessa leading up to the 94 elections. They drove it through together. So we know he's good at that. What he hasn't really shown us yet is on a global stage, even a national stage, how good a leader he is. We know he can negotiate. We know he's a fixer. Can he lead? That's the big question now. Can he lead? Can he lead in the right direction? I don't worry unduly about the sort of tone of the State of the Nation address. I'm encouraged that he's at least set out a vision, because you haven't had a vision. Mm. You've just spent nine years being mugged, really. <laughs> Each and every one of you, your exchequer and individually, you've been mugged. <laughs> so it wouldn't have been surprising if the bandits who did it were holed up somewhere with a lot of guns and tried to shoot themselves out of Parliament, but they didn't. Just, so the military luckily didn't aid them in that. But you have been mugged, now you've got someone who at least is showing you a vision and the test of a great leader is someone who can get you to buy into that vision and then deliver at least some of it. And that's the big test for Cyril. How do you think the, uh, the outside world sees him and saw him, saw this leadership uh, change? Oh, I think, I think with considerable encouragement, um, and I know the UK and a lot of countries who do business on a regular basis and have good strong ties with this country will have been relieved, as you all would have been individually, that the someone in charge who appears to be someone they can do business with. And interestingly, on the 
even this week when I arrived in Cape Town from Joburg, um, one of my oldest mates is a, uh, an old MK foot soldier and ANC strategist who's been a mining engineer for years. And he, said, he gave up on mining. He said it's such a shambles over the last few years. And he went back into farming investment. And he said the phone has been ringing off the hook this week with people who want to get back involved in mining. I bumped into another mate who's into big time investing into Africa from getting encouraging investment around side. And he again said the phone's ringing off the hook. So thumbs up, you know, just straw poll tastings, there is already encouraging signs that the outside world is going to take you much more seriously again and want to do business and hopefully invest and hopefully get that economy started. Well, because without the economy kicking up and producing money for the revenue, Cyril, the best bill in the world, is never going to be deliver on all those promises mm. that you've been waiting for for two decades. I spoke to a friend who went uh, with Cyril to Davos, to the IMF meeting, and he, the guy said to me what was so impressive. He says, say South Africa is a Gulf DTI. He says, Cyril went there, and he sold it successfully to the world as the latest Ferrari, and they bought it. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope that's true. Ray, back to you. Um, People have talked a lot about Jacob Zuma being this master strategist and tactician, and he's a chess player. I was never so convinced of that. I think he, uh, he wielded a sledgehammer uh, and ruled by power, although not a bad strategist. But now we have a different kind of strategist. And I think um, Cyril would really want to be president for the next 11 and a half years. He's two terms plus this 18 months until the elections. What are his chances, do you think, of surviving next year's election, uh, general election, and in five years' time, an election for ANC president? I think they're pretty good. I think that the alternative is David Mabuza at the moment, and I don't think the party will go there uh, very lightly, because that could take them back. Um, uh, you know, the election is real. You know, it's coming up next year. And the ANC is by no means assured of halting the slide, the voter slide. It's very difficult to reverse these slides. And especially to get people who have made a decision to be apathetic to go back and vote. So a lot of people might go, oh, answer all's better than Zuma. But I'm still going, you know, I'm not going to vote. They can have it. Um, so they've got a lot of work to do if they want to turn that around. I think the land issue is really about the election. It's yeah. about taking the wind out of the EFF sails and cutting off cauterizing the DAA from the black vote in South Africa. That, that issue neatly accomplishes both those objectives. It's all very vague. There's a commission meeting in August. It's going to meet how many months? Then it's going to propose legislation, which is going to go into a subcommittee. So after the election, you will actually get the outcome of this land thing. So on election day, people are going to be faced with the ANC and EFF, who both support the same land policy. Um, who are they going to vote for? I think it could be very demobilizing for the EFF. And then I think the DA 
is now made to stand outside going, let's stop this transformation thing. Um, and, and, and it's their key weakness. Their key weakness is their ability to project themselves to the majority of voters as a legitimate representative of majority interests. And this really does hurt them. So I think the ANC could probably halt the slide, maybe bounce it up a couple of points at, on the current trajectory in 2019, and then I think that would be enough for uh, Ramaphosa to then claim a mandate and start doing some stuff that could build him a... It would be a beachhead for the next election. I think I, I, I agree with that analysis, Kukitsa, but certainly Julius Malema and Floyd and Dali and Wieseni will all have thought about this, thinking what Cyril is doing, what the ANC is doing with land is, is literally taking the wind from our sails until after the election. And what we saw yesterday um, was the most extreme cheap populism, the most extreme rhetoric that I have listened to in my entire life in this country, coming from Seoul, coming from Julius. Is, is that their strategy, is to, to become even more uh, extreme in their rhetoric in expect, expecting this move by the ANC on land? Because they don't have Zuma anymore as, as the common enemy. Yeah, we should also, Max, not discount their, their ability to, as you said, anticipate and in turn strategize. Yes, we've always had the, the rhetoric and the populism uh, when it came from the EFF. You could go as far back as when they're members of the Youth League or even COSAS. Uh, so it goes, you know, it, it goes um, back quite a bit. But we shouldn't discount their ability to maneuver as well, because beyond the rhetoric, we've also seen them take very strategic positions in Parliament. It is because of them that, at the end of the day, Zuma is gone, depending on how you want to look at it. And it is also because of them <clears throat> that you have this, this land question. Yes, they are being neutralized right now with what Cyril is doing. I think we are, I expect, or I'm looking at the EFF and, and, and asking myself, so what else are you going to do? Mm. What other strategy are you going to come with? Um, what Julius Malema said continuously is, we're giving you one chance. Now the question is, how long is that, is that rope? It can't be 2019. It can't be them waiting for him to make changes to his cabinet only if he wins 2019. So something is going to give soon at some point. When it comes to, I think, Marigana is hanging over Cyril's head. Who knows how the EFF is going to, to utilize that. Um, the inability of Cyril Ramaphosa to completely overhaul the, the cabinet maybe also pre presents the EFF with an opportunity there to, to hit at a couple of people like Malusiki Gaba, whomever it might be. But I think if at all the delay to keep the land question and what's happening in Parliament to um, 2019, they will anticipate that. And we're going to see some drama ahead of, of 2019. They will not go into election uh, having been neutered. That's not going to happen. What struck me of yesterday's uh, Julius Malema performance was that most of the time, apart from talking about white people, most of the time he addressed the emerging new black middle class. His main issues were um, when 
a student, a black student graduates and can't get a job, then the state should pay that man or woman even if they stay at home. He went on about that and a great cheer. Um, he went on about universities and their capacity and he went on about the, the cost of data. Data must fall. He essentially, the bulk of his speech addressed middle class problems instead of unemployed youth workers. Do you, do you think that's the, that's the target uh, of the EFF? Because they know that those are their potential, that's their constituency who would go and vote, uh, whereas their potential constituency are all these disaffected young people who've been dropped by the system and they wander around without jobs, but they're not the kind of people who register and vote. Are they not, though? They haven't so do far. We, do we, I think there's also a need for, for us to not discount those in the rural areas, peri-urban areas, because similar issues exist. Right? Access to data, whatever it might be, it exists there yeah. as well. Um, yes, the, the tone uh, and some of the issues he points out might primarily <clears throat> speak to your middle-class urban, but I think we have seen over the past few years that consumption patterns and, and, and other uh, issues are are across the board, whether it's, it's urban or, or rural. I think what the EFF have done primarily is to continue to speak to the, the issues confronting your young black child. That is the message that they've always mm -hmm. said. Um, and yes, over if you look at the different rallies that, that Julius Malema has address the consistent message that they might use different examples, but the, the message is consistent. Where I think all political parties actually fail is to mobilize young people, is to actually make sure that we have more young people yeah. who are registering to vote. They yeah. all fail at it. I think the EFF, especially during the, 20, the, 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 the most recent local government elections, we've seen them on the ground actively trying to get young people uh, to, to register. What they were launching yesterday is directly aimed at young people, but we're yet to see a political party that actively mobilizes young people uh, to vote. And a lot of it might have to do with whether or not their policies speak directly and resonate mm. with young people. If Musi Maimani came to you and said, Koketso, you're a media and communications strategist, what should I do next if I want to do well with the elections next year? What would you tell Musi? Oh, he's got a problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's got a problem. The DA has got a problem. I mean, I know there are certain members of parliament of the DA who are worried right now. Because what, with the introduction of Cyril Ramaphosa, there are a number of predominantly DA supporters who are saying, I, I, could, I like him. Mm. You know, um, so there's a big challenge for, for the DA there. Um, what the ANC has also done, and you, you see it in, in Sona, and I put this to, to John Steenhazen at Sona, was Cyril Ramaphosa is also dealing with the rallying call of the DA, which is youth unemployment. So we will have all these uh, different engagements to discuss what to do with the issue of, of young people and unemployment. So that issue is being dealt with um, as well. So Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC in particular, what they've done is they've hit both the EFF and the DA on their core policies. 
and they're saying we are addressing this and that neutralizes them ahead of 2019. Musima Mani has got a big problem also because what we have seen is that the DA is like any other political party, they've got issues. They have for a number of years presented themselves and has um, even media presented them as uh, holier than now, they, they are no issues, but we've seen with um, the issues that exist unsaid within the DA caucus in Parliament, we've seen with Patricia Dillow, we've seen with Helen Zeller, it's like any other political party, there is infighting, nobody is writing about the tensions between Musi and John Stenazen within, uh, within uh, caucus itself. So. The DA could possibly, I mean, implode might be a, a wrong word, but there isn't the unity that should be there for them to actually stage a proper challenge to the ANC and, and the EFF ahead of 2019. So what can Musi do? I don't know. I think he's in trouble. I wouldn't know what to say to him. Uh, Jeremy, before we get to your book, Breaking News, um, a few thoughts about your sense of where we are at as a country and looking at with outside eyes and you were away for a bit and you came back was it all very familiar were there some things that have fundamentally shifted um i haven't been away that much really i was based here from 91 to 95 and then went off to the states and then started anchoring in london and really for about the last 20 years i've generally come back on holiday then i came back for the the final months of Mandela's life and his funeral. I was back for the Pistorius trial. So I felt I've kept a, a pretty reasonable and regular finger on the pulse. Um, I, one of my thoughts really is that the tragedy has been that the democracy that was so hard won come the election of 94 and all the blood, sweat and tears that had been uh, shed winning that for all the people rather than the few um, has been disrespected and besmirched to an extent in democratic terms over the last few years and it feels looking in from the outside as if the country has been marking time on many levels economically it has struggled to move forward there's been an, an element of inertia politically it doesn't feel like you've moved forward so they project that Mandela started, if you like, that Mbeki took on to a reasonable extent of trying to rebuild a country for all the people has been put on hold. So it feels like Ramaphosa is certainly saying the right sort of things. He is offering a vision and asking people to join him and to buy into that. If he delivers some or all of those things that he said in the State of the Nation address, then that would be promising. I, one of the things I thought was probably smartest of him to do was to reach out to pretty much all the other parties in Parliament and say, you know, we will sit down and talk. Now, he really has to do that because, one, it helps to nullify the, the, the vocality of the EFF and Malema and the other parties, but he may actually better draw some of their best ideas and combine it. So, I mean, what the country actually needs at the moment is a government of national unity. He's not going to be that lucky, but the nearest he can get to it, the better to try and drive forward and do a bit of catching up. Um, you know, people here always tear their hair out when you come in from outside. They say, oh, our country's in dreadful state. No, I'm always encouraged. I'm always optimistic about South Africa, and I think you've marked time a bit. But you know, I say 
You only won democracy 24 years ago. You know, I mean, we've been doing it for hundreds of years in the UK and we're still trying to figure out how to get it right. So don't be discouraged, work out your own democracy and you have a, you've basically got a chance to have another go at it now. But ideally, Cyril needs to get <clears throat> as many of the rival parties as he can involved, get them inside the tent, out, pushing out, whatever you like to say, <laughs> rather than those in, outside um, into in. the tent. So, you know, be positive, I think, and give Cyril a chance. The big thing really is how long's the honeymoon period for him, and it will be a honeymoon until Marikana and Shanduka and all the other things start to catch up with him. The moment he puts a couple of feet wrong, people will, you know, have a go at him. So I don't know whether he's got till next April or whether he's got 100 days or what. <clears throat> he sure needs to get weaving. Let's get to your book, Breaking News. Um, not a textbook autobiography, more like memoirs, I would say, because very little <coughs> about the sins of young Jeremy when he was a child in Britain. It's mostly concentrating on your journalism days. I wrote a, a headline one chapter in it, It's Not About Me, and that kind of sums up my philosophy about TV news, is that sadly nowadays we've drifted into sort of personality news a bit too much. My view was that I was just the deliverer of a message, a chronicler, a medium through which you got to hear about the news wherever I was in the world and I hopefully built up some credibility and some trust on your behalf to tell you that story and you'd go along with me telling it and there's a big danger nowadays of standing in front of the news because news bosses are trying to look for a point of difference and they are encouraging anchors and correspondents to be, be the news rather than deliver the news, to stop being a chronicle and start being a celebrity. For me, that's anathema. So when I say it's not about me, it's a little sort of vignette I throw out there. I hope that young journalists might stop in their tracks and think about that. So the book, yes, it's about what I've seen, but it's not about me. And, you know, I didn't bring in much personal stuff about my misspent childhood or, you know, going down the pub at 14 or whatever it was. I, you know, yes, <laughs> there are some amusing tales, but to, yeah. in all honesty, where I've been, what I've seen, I've been as lucky as any journalist yeah. could ever be. It's a body of work which few will probably get a chance to do these days, so I just want to tell people something about where I've been, what I'd seen, and maybe some new things they hadn't heard before. And it was a joy for me as a journalist to read it. Um, let's, the three of us, four of us are all... Uh, in the media space. Let's talk a bit about international media. Uh, what we expose to a lot is American media, fake news, um, the distance between uh, media like CNN and the people, the distrust. Give us some of your ideas on, on the trends in the world. Well, I was fully immersed in the sort of relatively new phenomenon of fake news doing the 2016 election in the States, where it sort of really did start to come home what a threat it is to freedom of speech and our culture of trust in the news media to an extent, just trust in the, you know, the given, written, spoken, visual word. Um, so I said by the end of it, there was so much fake news, so much distortion. I don't think fake news is anything new. I think it's just a 
variation on propaganda and misinformation which human beings have used since the start of time. But it's packaged rather well and rather cleverly these days and the snake oil salesman is dressed in a snappy suit and it comes through digital media and it comes at you at warp speed so quickly and so instantaneously and so insidiously that you've absorbed it, you've heard it, you've listened, you may even start to believe it before you have a chance to turn it round and reject it and redact it from your life. So it, it is difficult and I wrote it towards the end of my book that at the end of the Trump election campaign <clears throat> I'd walked across a country where I'd seen facts face down like roadkill on the information superhighway. I can't really describe it much better than that. That's what it was. So there's a huge onus on those of us in the mainstream media, as we call it, to work doubly hard to get our facts right, to make you believe that we really are still trying to tell you the genuine, impartial, balanced, best news we can, to combat the blizzard, the chaff of fake news that is deluging down multiplied not only, magnified not only by the amount of fake news around, not just in the States, but the fact that now you've seen it here, you've seen it all over the place. Vanity Project TV stations and radio stations mm. by bullshitters and bandits and desperados and despots and dictators around the world and just billionaires who all fancy having a say in your life and telling you what's good for you. And they're setting up TV stations and that's pouring out a load of vitriol and information and misinformation as well. So it's a difficult place out there. I'm not sure I want to be a young journalist because you've got one hell of a battle on your hands, I mm. think. You're, you're reading, Ray, on, on the local scene, yeah, media you know, scene? I, I think there's a tremendous challenge facing South African media right now. And it's to do with the uh, transition from the Zuma era. You know, because uh, it's been easy. You know, you've got 200,000 leaked emails to go through for a story every 10 minutes. That's a blockbuster. Breaking news! <laughs> you know, the Guptas bought a coal mine and yeah. sold the contract to ESCOM. You know, so that, that story that keeps on giving is going away now. And media has to get back to its knitting, which is to try and sift through what is what is out there and presented um, in a clear and as constructive a way as possible. I think one of the the, 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 the sins that's kind of emerged, well I'm not sure it's a sin, but um, that Zuma caused a lot of journalists to become partisans yeah. in a cause against Zuma. And so there is a kind of expectation that um, you know, they must now be partisans, maybe for Ramaphosa, or, you know, and I think that, that actually what's needed is a transition from that. There was a crisis in the country. Yeah. Everybody saw the rot, saw how bad it was, stood up against it. Um, but now that Zuma is off the stage, uh, that kind of approach has got to be shelved. And we've actually got to start dealing with what are the policies, how do they play out, what are the economic impact of what you know, is being suggested? Um, is Ramaphosa crossing any lines? Um, he's got to be held accountable, kept in check. And actually the media's got to just reverse out of this partisan frame of mind and this highly opinionated frame of mind 
and go back to reporting, I think, if it's going to establish its credibility. I buy that. Roketo? I, I agree with, with, with Jeremy um, that fake news has always been there. There's some international news channels that are built on embedded journalism pushing propaganda, you know. Um, but for me, whether it's international media or locally, I think the, the responsibility lies with us as consumers of media. Um, what I find problematic is some of us are not willing to, to dig deeper on an issue. So we, we consume news in, 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 in portions. Whatever is on ENCA or EWN, that is what we're going to focus on at that time. But there's always context behind every single story. Um, there's an unwillingness by some of us to actually engage in dialogue on an issue. So we look at things in isolation, we react to it at that particular time based on whatever our emotions are, but we don't take the time to actually pause and think. So what actually happened, whether it's issues of land or even the Guptas? We got so caught up in the Guptas that there's also a discussion that needs to be had of the history of Glencore, you know, apartheid era contracts that were signed, the state captured then already have that conversation side by side with the Guptas as well, because it's wrongdoing in general. But because we're living in post-apartheid South Africa, uh, we tend to focus on the issues that the media puts out right now, but we've got a long history in our country of wrongdoing. And that's a conversation that we're not having. What I appreciate about a medium like radio is the space to have that dialogue but even within that, people are not willing to, to, to have the dialogue. So I think we need to be a bit more cautious about what we all say in the media, uh, draw our own conclusions about a particular issue, engage it a bit deeper, uh, and move beyond the headlines and page three of a newspaper. Ray, a quick question to you. You've been uh, editor of Times and the Sunday Times, <clears throat> so the print versions, but also you've been uh, in charge of online. Will we still have newspapers in a decade, or will it all be online? Yeah, uh, look, we still have vinyl records, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> there might be a speciality store somewhere in Stellenbosch <laughs> where you can go and get your newspaper. <laughs> no, I think that the trend is moving to online, but I think newspapers are still very big in South Africa. Um, the high price of data is a massive factor. I think newspapers should lobby that it gets even higher and that it stays as high as possible. Um, because, you know, I, because mass access to online is, you know, in South Africa is still limited by the high cost, the high barrier to entry. But I think that'll fall away, I mean, over the next yeah. five, ten years. And when people are able to access the news immediately and, you know, freely without sort of having to wonder what what the bill is going to be at the end of the month. It's going to be a very different story. Uh, tough for print media, but I think print media will survive. I just don't think they will be the dominant media force that they are now. The one thing where I did ag agree with uh, Julius yesterday is data must fall. I don't know how he wants uh, government to force MTN and Vodacom to just give it away for free. I don't know what the model is going to be, but I remember going to Rwanda uh, a couple of times in the last 10 years, and you get into the most remote village, 
and it's banana trees and little huts and there's a kid in a shelter online for free yeah. and I spoke to uh, the president Paul uh, Kagame and I said what, what is your obsession with that I'm not entirely sure if I entirely believe his answer but he said if you give people full access to information you make sure that what happened here will never be able to happen again. Nobody can lie to the people on that scale as before, as they did before the, uh, the genocide. I think that is kind of true. Um, and I really would like to see, uh, I'm the father of a, a Lart Lameki who's still in high school, and I mean those kids live online, and I pay for it. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Same position. We got five minutes. Any burning questions? Um, we got time for one or two questions before There's one ten. right at the back there. There's a question at the back, apparently. Yes. Thank you. Um, I just want to make a comment or say something that has always bothered me. I know that our current president, Mr. Ramaphosa, is for me, it's only, he's only an interim president at the moment. And I think Mr. Malema has also made it very clear that he has given his first and last state of the nation. So he's in a very interim stage for me. My question is, has anybody ever delved into the history of how Mr. Ramaphosa became so rich so quickly? Because um, I've read somewhere that he's spending money on a 30 million rand stand sub, uh, somewhere in the Western Cape. I assume that would be um, original sin stands. Um, and then after 1994, up until now, Mr. Zuma has not become such a rich man over that period in relation to Mr. Ramaphosa. That has also been a very interesting, why does nobody ask the question about where does, does that Mr. Ramaphosa's money come from? Surely there, Surely there must have been a connection with Western capital, white capital. Thank you. Yeah, uh, a lot of people would say to you, do you ask the same question when uh, Christo Wiese's daughter um, buys a house worth 76 million? in Clifton. Um, but I think Ray, yeah, address uh, the question. I think it's a very good question. Um, you know, read my book, it's all in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that Ramaphosa's timing was excellent in 1996 with the constitution wrapped up and he was approached by Mortlana to join the National Empowerment Consortium, which was an array of disparate uh, business organizations trying to cut the first big empowerment deal with Anglo. And he reorganized them and cut out the, a lot of the chaff and ended up as the leader of that organization and went into this empowerment deal with Anglo, which was very productive. It wasn't their top performing assets, but um, he came out of that with quite a, uh, a good bundle of money. And he was then able to parlay that into the Shanduka business empire, which acquisitions and so on, all smoothed again by the empowerment framework. And he certainly did use his connectedness 
sorry, is political connectedness to make deals. You know, a lot of people say that Ramaphosa is a tool of white monopoly capital. Uh, I think white monopoly capital is a tool of Ramaphosa, you know. I mean, who's using who here? Who yeah. started with nothing and ended up with 8.5 billion yeah. at the other party's expense? Um, you know, so he built that empire and it's all, it's all there. I think what's quite notable is that he stayed away from the, uh, the deal-making with government that could have, I think it was a political calculation that he didn't want to be in that association. He didn't want it to come back and haunt him in the future, which is now. Um, and so he never got involved in the arms deal you know, Feinstein's book, over 600 pages, Ramaphosa is not even mentioned um, as having passed by a meeting room or, you know, uh, so he never got involved in any of that kind of contractual stuff with the state, building locomotives or whatever. He stayed very much in mining, private sector and so on. And there are some questions about coal and, yeah. you know, which, which could be looked at. But, um, but essentially, I think he used his positioned very smartly to leverage a lot of capital out of white monopoly capital and into his, his organization. Um, a quick last question from anybody. Here's someone here in front. Roaming right Mike. Here it comes. How do you think the interpretations of Julius and Mr. Ramaphosa differ on this question of um, land without you know, taking it over without compensation because surely they would have different ways of actually seeing the practicality of that down the line. Okay, sir. You want to go yeah. first? Uh, I think um, what Ramaphosa has done is, or the ANC, because we tend to separate Ramaphosa from the ANC, which is quite problematic. But what, what they have done, as articulated by the, the conference resolutions, is to do it in such a way that it doesn't threaten food security um, and, and the economy, which is why the ANC put in the amendment that they did when the matter was, was debated, allowing space for there to be dialogue um, in Parliament about ex the modalities. This is what they, the ANC keeps on talking about. What the difference between the two is, as I, as I said, what the conditions, if you will, it must happen but not threaten. What the EFF has, has said is that it just needs to happen. But what we're seeing now moving forward, which is also an opportunity for all of us to be part of the conversation, by the way, um, is dialogue around how exactly is going to happen. Yes, it's going to happen. How do we do it? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have time for. It's uh, exactly 10 o'clock. Koketsu, Ray, Jeremy, thank you very much. Thank you. One last thing. Thanks, Mike. Uh, please go out.